Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 21. In this episode, I talked to Ann Hansen of Inner Parent Coaching. Ann is a former public school educator and a developmental specialist who co-runs an alternative therapeutic program on a 33-acre farm in Oregon. She describes the farm as a self-directed space where kids come to work with animals and figure out how to express themselves. I invited Ann on to share her work, but to also share her journey from public school to alternative education and to discuss attachment theory, how attachment impacts our children, and what attachment parenting looks like through the teen years. As a mother to two grown unschoolers, Anne is reflective, she offers practical advice, and brings a calm to the conversation that I truly appreciate, and I think you will too. Here is my conversation with Anne Hansen. All right, well, hello, Missy. My name is Anne Hansen, and I am the mom of two grown unschoolers. They are 19 and 20 right now. I'll tell a little bit about my background and how I got to unschooling because it was certainly not on my radar when I first (laughs) had kids. Um, I'm a developmental specialist and I currently run a farm-based wellness program. That's my in-person practice. And we have a 33-acre farm where we see really our goal is to support the emotional health of children and families. So we see children, teens, and adults, and we incorporate partnering with animals. We really consider ourselves more of an alternative therapeutic program. So we have horses and rabbits and goats and therapy cats, and the kids have an opportunity to really self-direct when they're there and and manage their own time and they can spend time with the animals. Or we also have a renovated studio where we have art materials and we do some movement and somatic work. So it's really an opportunity for kids to figure out how to express themselves, have their own needs met and really learn the relationship when they're at the farm. We also do some parent coaching there as well. That's amazing, and man. I, I, I have to, can, if it's okay if I can stop you for a second, just yes, to elaborate yes. a little bit more on your farm space. So is this something that mm-hmm. you put out to the world and people find you maybe kind of randomly or word of mouth, or do you work directly with organizations that people can connect with you? So it's a, <laughs> so this is part of my homeschooling journey was it's a friend of mine who we met through the sort of homeschool unschool community. Mm. And we, she actually is a counselor and works with animals and she's an equine certified equine specialist. And when we met, when she heard me talking about the way I work with children and how I, I see relationship as key and connection as key to everything 
she kept saying, Oh, we, we need to do something together. We need to, we need to like get this together because there's something really special here. So we have formed a really special relationship over the year. And we started working out of her property. She had a couple of acres and some horses and just doing some after school programs that has grown in the past, I think three years ago, we were able to um, get a 33 acre farm and that's when we were to really able to develop the program more formally. Um, so we're available for local people. I'm in Oregon. And uh, we've just been, we actually opened, which is kind of funny how this happened. We had finished renovation in February of 2020. And we had opened for two weeks when the lockdown oh, happened. Gosh. So we had just started. I mean, it was talk about hard blows mm-hmm. and how we need to dance with life sometimes and just flow with it. So we had opened, we had these after school programs going, we had to shut down. We kind of regrouped and we decided in June of that year to reopen again and just see individual clients. And it ended up being so needed in the community and such a beautiful practice that we we have continued on just seeing individual kids right now. So that's what we do at the farm. And we, like I said, we do a lot of energetic groundwork. So working on um, nonverbal communication, empowerment, leadership, um, leadership skills with the kids. And then in our studio, we do a lot of sand tray processing and processing with art materials. Okay. And what age group are you working with or this? We are primarily seven to about 16 year olds Mm. is what we work with mostly. Okay. That's amazing. That sounds, I was like, as soon as you said Oregon, I was like, darn it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's a a, a special program. And for my friend and I, we've put so much heart into it and we're really careful with how we grow because we, it's a, we really want people there who want to be there who understand the importance of relationship and growth. And so it's just, we've been, it's like our baby that we are continuing to nurture and let it grow. I love that. It's, it's like our relationships, right? Trying to be an intentional, Mm -hmm. intentional and aware. And, and I like the whole idea of putting that same sort of philosophy onto a business model so that you're not overextending yourself and, taking the time so that you can really build those connections with kids. And I think that's so key in really being able to impact them. Yeah. Like, like we're really careful with our own boundaries with not taking on too much because then we're not in the space to really be able to support other people. So yeah, that is a, it's a major um, part of the program. Mm -hmm. So as a developmental specialist, does that mean that you have like a degree in psychology or is it, in, in mm-hmm. what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So I have actually my master's in special education okay. and I started out working. I don't know if you're familiar, you might be Missy in early intervention mm-hmm. in the school. So I was working with the birth through five population doing developmental testing oh, okay. is what I was doing at the time. So I was doing developmental testing and then providing cognitive and emotional support mm. for kids um, either in therapeutic nursery programs or later on I was in the public school system and really working with mainly children in foster care, 
children who had experienced some significant trauma. Okay. And, and those were the kids that I was really focused on emotional development. Yeah. Well, and how, how do you do that? Like how, what, what's sort of, you know, could you give us kind of like a little bit of an overview of what that might look like? So if you have a, somebody who comes to you and you know that they've had some trauma in their lives, mm-hmm. you know, do you sort of create a program that they would follow or do you just take it kind of day by day or, or session by session? So are you talking about at the farm or when I was with the school district? Oh, actually, that's a good question. I was thinking in general, but <laughs> but, very different. Yeah, but I bet you're right. It probably is very different in the school setting versus the farm setting. So yeah. let's look, let's just talk about the farm setting, which we're doing currently. Okay. You know what? Can I talk about the school Absolutely. system? Because I just want to talk because it actually is, it has led me to how I practice today. So great. when yeah, I went into the school system, I was always fascinated with why people do what they do. I, I, I'm fascinated with watching people's behavior. I was fascinated as a young child with adults around me and why they did things <laughs> and how a lot of things didn't make sense. I'm so sorry. I have to laugh because we've talked about this <laughs> off the mic. I'll have to just go ahead and tell people that you and I have had so many similarities. It's crazy. And you saying it that, it's like, oh my God, that was me. I was constantly staring at people, watching, observing, taking notes, mental notes, you know? So yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. I'm sorry. I just thought that was yeah, too funny. No, I know. <laughs> it's funny. We have this like uh, this parallel existence. <laughs> I knew you'd understand that. So that's why I really went into special ed because I, I wanted to understand why kids were doing what they were doing. And I also wanted to really connect. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of disconnection. So when I was with the school district, I I loved when I got these kids who were not having success in other environments because I I was looking at things differently. So I wanted to be able to connect on a different way. So I was doing, you know, IFSPs and IEPs with the school district. And there's, there's some limitations to that with what I could do and how I could work with kids. And what I, I mean, I actually was I loved my job. I didn't like the structure that I was working under. And I did not want to leave, but after a while, I just realized that my my values were not really aligned with how I was seeing kids treated in that system. So I just couldn't do the work I wanted to do. So that's when I left. Mm-hmm. And so the work at the farm looks very, very different. And when kids come to the farm, the one thing we always say to parents is, you know, we don't want you to say to them, you're coming for therapy or you're coming to work on something. It's their time to decide how they want to spend it, get closer to knowing what their own needs are and how to meet their needs. That's really what it's all about. And all of that happens when they're in relationships. So they're really coming to play and have an experience on the farm. I know the kinds of things that might be challenging for them. And I ask lots of questions and then I sort of guide that, but they really are, are, are leading me. I'm really taking my cue from them. Okay. So like, for an example, if I know somebody's coming because they're dealing with anxiety, we might go out to the goats and I might notice that they're not feeling safe. And so I might ask questions about what, you know, what they think might happen if they go in with the goats. Do they feel safer staying outside? And again, all of that is okay, but it's just getting them more in touch with 
this is what I need right now. Right now I need a little bit of distance. Maybe tomorrow I'll go in. And so there's lots of conversation that comes up when we're partnering with the animals. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's really trying to get them to become more aware of their body and their, 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 mm-hmm. their like you said that earlier, the somatic support and trying mm-hmm. to understand like what the cues are and how to interpret them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. And have you noticed, is there sort of like a typical time that it takes kids to sort of warm up to the situation or is it just so individualized? It's pretty individual. But it it depends what they're coming in with. And some kids who might come in with more comfort, I'll see them spending more time with the animals at first, and then they might want to spend more time in the studio after a couple of months. And I see them doing lots of sand tray processing or processing with art materials or the therapeutic game. So it really varies. Other kids, I notice, who may be really nervous about being with the animals I might just be planting some seeds for next time. Mm. Like, oh, you know, we can always go in and brush, but you let me know when you feel like that's something that you want to do. And they might show up the next time and say, oh, I'm ready to go in. Okay. And it's and then we might go from that to leading the, the goats. And we talk a lot about leadership and consensual leadership and leading from behind and what leadership means to them, what power means to them. There's lots of conversations that come up just from being with animals, which is really incredible. Mm. And do you work with the parents as well while their children are on the farm? Or do you have like a separate Mm -hmm. time to work with the families to sort of teach them some of these skills? We have a separate time. And actually, the parent part of our program is something that we are in the process of expanding quite a bit. So we usually do a couple of sessions with the child, and then we'll meet with the parent because it's really important to us that we have parent input and that we are connecting families and helping them get stronger. Like it's huge. Just seeing the child alone, really, I have to say it's, it, you don't get the biggest benefit. So the parents are hugely key. It's all about their parental relationship with their child. So we do a lot of that. And we're in, like, like I said, we're trying to come up with more ways to get more parents in to the program, really working with parents. I have a couple of parents that I work with just the parents and not even the child, actually. Right. Well, and and over the years, I know I've certainly experienced that when I was working in the schools and then even on the research projects and things that I've been able to participate in, that there's sometimes this notion that the child is the the one that needs the most attention. (laughs) And usually you're like, well, they have to go back to the situation and back into that environment What's that environment look like? Who are the people? How are they interacting with this child? You know, you can only do so much with the kids and teach them specific things about themselves, but you can't change their environment for them. So mm-hmm. I do find that Absolutely. to be such a huge piece of of the mental health puzzle and um, supporting the kids to become the best versions of themselves. So, you know, speaking of, of that, one of the things that I wanted us to talk about today was attachment theory. And mm-hmm. I know it's something that you're very familiar with and, and some of the posts that you've written and shared. I, I've appreciated how you lay things out very succinctly and and it it makes it, I think, more understandable for people when, mm-hmm. when you know, because some of these things can be really 
almost nebulous and like hard to nail down. So I'm just wondering if maybe we could kind of walk through attachment theory and like, what is it? How do we apply it? What does that look like through the years? And then of course, eventually get up to like the teen years and how, how does that play out? If, especially if we started it when they were really young and maybe kind of what, how does that impact our teens as, as that, that time comes, comes about? Sure, sure. So, I mean, really, I mean, attachment theory can get more complex if we're talking about different styles of attachment, but the, the main, the main thing, attachment is really our emotional bond and connection to each other. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about attachment parenting, we're really talking about that attachment to a primary caregiver. That's where it begins, right? With the primary caregiver. And then when you have secure attachment, it starts to sort of branch out to other people. The child can take that secure attachment template, so to speak, right? And then um, sort of uh, integrate that into other people. So are you, did you want me to go into more Missy of like the actual, I, I think we would get lost if we talk about different styles. Really what we're talking about is secure attachment. Yes. And that means, right. Yeah, right. No, I agree. I think if we get too much into it, it starts getting hard right. to follow when you're listening. So yeah, no, I like that. Right. So really that's what we're talking about is the child needs to have a secure attachment with the parent. And what that means is a parent that they know that they can trust that's predictable and that they know is safe. And when all of that is in place, the child is, is able to learn, relate, experience their emotions in a safe way. And that's ideally what we want to see happening with kids. And so, you know, especially in the past work that I've done, a lot of that attachment gets disrupted for various reasons. There's always ways to go in and repair it, but it starts really young. Yeah. So actually, this just came up. I was talking to somebody yesterday and I'm hesitant to even bring this up because I know some people still use these. Some, some of the ways that we intervene to sort of manage behavior are disrupting attachment. So I'll just say right off the bat that some people are still using timeouts and I get it. It's, 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 it's encouraged for a lot of families, but we have to be really careful that no matter what strategy you're using when you're working with your child, that we're not just managing behaviors that we are thinking about that connection and that we keep that, that, relationship intact. Does that make sense what I'm saying, Miss? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I and I think what is important to um consider is that it what tends to happen, I think, is people create they 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 do an action that they feel like is going to stop the behavior, mm -hmm. but really what they're doing is missing an opportunity for connection to understand where yes. the behavior came from. Yes. And that, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Missy. No, I was just going to say over the years, I, I, I heard going from time out to time in. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being you separate from the child and send them away because they're quote unquote doing something wrong or bad or whatever, you instead um, wrap their arms around them and bring them close and get, you know, on eye level or sit down together and discuss the situation or even just sit quietly for a few minutes, whether or not, you know, if the child's dysregulated, maybe crying or just feeling really overwhelmed, maybe even tantruming, mm -hmm. if just stay within a close distance, 
but let them know you're there and then, you know, help them sort of regulate their nervous system. But I guess it would be important to note that if the parent's nervous system is out of whack, you know, there is a case to be made that maybe everybody does need to take a breather, Mm -hmm. but it could be also in such a done in such a way that says this situation is really out of control and we all need to just take a breath and have a couple of minutes. (laughs) And so, and I think that, you know, that seems perfectly normal and perfectly okay to do if everybody's really upset. That is the exact conversation I had yesterday. So it's so funny. Oh, wow. (laughs) Thing that I said, because it was a, it was a situation where everybody's nervous system was just completely dysregulated. There's Mm -hmm. a big difference in saying, let's like, let's take a moment away and let's come back when when we, when we feel more grounded it's very different than sit in this chair for six minutes, you know, because this yeah. is how old you are. It's just such a different feeling. And, mm-hmm. and even like you said, you mentioned dysregulation. I, I, I love that this is becoming more common language now. So I'm also a yoga therapist. I didn't add that, but it's yeah. kind of like in my whole journey of how to study relationship and understand behavior, I'm a big movement person and movement has always been a way for me to move my own energy. So when my friend and I started this farm program, she was like, Hey, wouldn't it be great if you pursued this, this like yoga Mm -hmm. training to add that to some of the workshops that we were doing so that when we, when we got participants, we got people into their bodies first and then they were able to really connect in very, very different ways. So anyway, in that yoga therapy training, I'm really trained in understanding nervous system health and how our thoughts impact our nervous system, how our own um, physical activity affects our nervous system, stress and all of that. So when we're looking at kids that are melting down, I often say to families, you share a nervous system. I know for myself, mm-hmm. when I'm more stressed out, my, my kids are going to reflect it. I always say kids are like a barometer of what's happening for us. So if they're freaking out, it's a real time to pause and look at ourselves and see like, okay, what's happening here? Am I contributing to this? How can I help this? And, and again, being regulated ourselves doesn't mean that we're always at this calm place. It just means that we can, you know, we might get a little bit activated, but we can come back down to this centered place. Like you mentioned before, stepping away for a moment, and then we can come back. Yeah. Well, I was always fascinated with my first, well, both, both kids, but my firstborn, just because, you know, they're the ones that teach you how to be a parent. (laughs) And, and he would just pick up on my mood change in a nanosecond. And I was just like, whoa, I didn't even think my facial expression changed or anything. He'd be like, what's wrong, mommy? You know, (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness. But it, it, Yes, he would just so in tune and I would I was always floored at how quickly he would pick up on any sort of shift or or like even and and we talked about it especially when they he got older and I talked to both my kids like you can sense that feeling when you walk in a room. Mm-hmm, yep. You sense it. You know who's in a bad mood, who to stay away from, who to who you can go to, who you feel comfortable and safe around. I was like, so that's powerful stuff. And the earlier I think we can help our kids yes. tap into that. Um, and it starts at home. So you want them to be able to openly share with your the parents and the caregivers 
how their body is feeling and to be able to put words to that. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll get into a little bit more about like the importance of recognizing how our bodies feel and what our emotions are, are kind of signaling to Mm -hmm. us, but also the importance of not living there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's huge. And that's actually a big part of the work that we do with animals. Cause you know, I know that you're a dog person and you understand animals and they often pick up what we're feeling before we even know it. It's the same way with Mm -hmm. our kids. And it's because animals don't have language. Some of them are prey animals. They have to be really attuned. And so as parents, we have to be really attuned to our kids. But in order to be attuned to our kids, we have to be really attuned to ourselves. So it takes so much self-reflection to figure out our own needs. And yeah, I, I think when we say to our kids, you know, oh, everything's fine. They know when it's not. And I had a similar yeah, moment. They can, <laughs> they can sit and like, that's BS. <laughs> that I knew I was like, okay, I'm doing this right. I Years ago, I had to do some very minor, minor surgery on my finger. And it was the night before and I was feeling stressed and a bit nervous about it. And I was not my best self with my kids. And I was kind of short with one of my sons and he looked right at me and he said, mom, I know you're just nervous about your surgery tomorrow. Oh, whoa. Like it was, it stopped (laughs) me in my tracks. And I thought how amazing that he, he knew it wasn't him. Mm -hmm. He didn't get defensive. He felt safe enough to say to me, you know, mom, I, I know you're feeling stressed. That just melted me. And then we were connected again. And that mm-hmm. is a secure attachment. And that's where we want to be with our kids so that they feel safe enough to say those kinds of things to us. And that's where the mm-hmm. learning, I think, comes from being a parent. It's just huge when we can slow down and sort of absorb and integrate those moments. They're just huge. They really are. They're they're pretty pivotal moments. And, it, you know, what you were mentioning earlier about um, how if maybe somebody didn't start out with a secure attachment and maybe how you can kind of work towards that. I know we could really get into the weeds here. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't want to really go down in the, you know, the direction of like a therapy session, necessarily, but, but, but sort of the ideas behind repair, mm-hmm. because that's a huge piece of the conversation that definitely is being, I think, shared um, on social media and in in the general circles of people who are interested in this sort of conversation is like, what is repair and what does that mean? And is repair 100% effective? And can people, are there certain things you can't repair? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess that's a, it's not an absolute answer that we can have, because I know every child's different, every every child's temperament's different. And what might impact one kid really severely or pretty significantly. The other one can just brush right off and it not even phase them. So, but what is, what would you give as some, maybe some examples or guidance? And every parent's different too, right? Every parent on their own journey of, of self-realization is is at a different point, but I would say it starts with, we have to really trust, trust in ourselves and trust our kids and start by, trying your hardest to see them for who they are. It's really hard when we've, you know, let me give an example. Maybe, maybe there's been some disconnect done because your child is a teen and they're having problems with school or problems socially. And sometimes 
we respond from this place of fear, right? Like you should do this, or we think we're helping, but mm. we're really not letting them have their experience. And a lot of the time they don't need us to fix them. They just need us to see them and let them give them the space to take space. And so that's a really hard right. thing to do when we have fears as parents. But I would say it starts by listening, like really listen to what your teen or your child is saying to you. Give them space to be alone or come to you when they need you. I'm trying to think of what else would repair. Um, well, and I think too, just oh, it just popped in or, my head about re, re, replay or um, restating back to them what they yeah. say to you so that you can really ensure that you're hearing exactly what it is they're saying. Because sometimes we may hear them and we might interpret it a little differently in our brain, but if we're able to restate it and then they can correct us or they can be like, yeah, exactly. Yes. And that's such a good point, Missy, too, because not only do we make sure that we're understanding their message, but it gives them a chance to dive a little bit deeper into like, mm. what they said and their own values. I've done this a lot with teens and it's really interesting. Sometimes they might actually, when they hear it said back to them, they're like, you know what? They don't really believe that. So it really, again, it's giving them the space to figure mm. out their own values and, and what they're saying. And I love that. that I love that about self-directed education because it's giving people the time to dig into their own values. Like I love when people ask me questions about, well, why did you do it this way? Because it, it helps me become more clear on why I am doing something a certain way. Yes. Yes. Gosh, it's so true. And every time I write about it or talk about it to somebody else, it just gets more and more solidified. Right? <laughs> and my understanding of it even gets better. And I thought, you know, sometimes I think I already understand it all. And then I go and write something or hear somebody else say something. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, it's even better. You know? <laughs> right. Now understand it even more. Yeah, that's so, that's, that's so great to have a couple of ideas sort of that parents can pull from almost like this, like the toolbox, you know, our emotional toolkit that we have and how we can consider using certain, ta not tactics, but techniques, right. really. I mean, right. it's relationship techniques, it's um, communication and how, how we can ensure that we're taking the time to really get to know the people that we love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think slowing down helps a lot, you know, often, especially when we're in sort of fear mode, we want to control more. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so worried um, about my child. But if we slow down and step back, sometimes it becomes more clear what we need to do. And also something else that I do a lot, and I still do this with my kids, they're 19 and 20. If I'm feeling fear, I, I, I still get it. Like, will they be okay in the world? Are they going to find their, their path? I say it to them like, hey, I'm having these concerns and, you know, talk to me. And they, they have a secure enough relationship with me that they, they know where that's coming from. And they don't feel like they have to protect me. They, they, they know that I can handle anything they're going to say to me. But we have this open dialogue. So I can say, hey, I've got these concerns. And every time that I get really honest and curious and authentic with them, it's like this long exhale afterwards. I always mm. feel better. Always. And mm -hmm. so 
I've learned, like you said, the more we articulate this, the more we do this, that trust is just huge. And being comfortable yeah. with being uncomfortable because, I mean, look, if COVID showed us anything, it was that the world is not certain, right? We have. Yeah. And I think we saw so many people struggling because we need such certainty in our lives. And I saw the people who were able to kind of flow with uncertainty handled it a lot better. So it's just huge. And I see my kids actually better at it than I am. So I am continually learning from them, but it's, it's asking questions. You know, again, I say to people step back, but it's this, this dance of stepping back, but also being comfortable asking questions, but be really careful that your questions aren't coming from a place of, of, fear and trying to control it versus like real curiosity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you led with, I'm, I'm like you, you presented it to your, your son as I'm Mm -hmm. having a problem. Like I need a little bit more clarification instead of you're doing this and this and this, and it's making me, you know, as if the person is, has control over your emotions. You know, that's one of the biggest problems and issues. I think a lot of relationships fall into is that if someone is done a behavior, then they're the ones that have made you mm-hmm. feel a certain way and people don't take ownership over their own emotions. So the fact that you led with, I'm feeling a certain way because of my concerns and my fears, I'm wondering if maybe we can walk through this a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's such a, it's such a good point because what I have found in the beginning of all this, when I was, you know, a younger parent, when you and it's with any relationship when you lead with you're doing this to me i mean all it does is put the other person on defense but when when sure. i own it this is my issue can you help me number one they feel seen they don't feel defensive and they want to help me out that's you know we have this relationship where it's reciprocal and we partner with a lot of decisions so leading with that makes such a big difference like hey this is what i'm feeling yeah yeah one of one of my biggest memories of, of college was a, in a communications class. And I loved my professor. He was so funny and great. But he, one of the things he said, it was like, people cannot make you feel a certain way. It's merely your reaction to something they said. And I thought that that was like the most life-changing statement probably. Yes. <laughs> and it it really stuck with me forever and ever. And it um, also contributed greatly to how I showed up as a mom, not that I had all the, all the pieces in order and didn't flounder because I definitely did. But what I think it helped me, um, helped me really lead and teach my children that you don't get to, don't hand your keys, don't hand the keys to your heart and your emotions to somebody Mm -hmm. else to control. So, you know, because if you allow people's behaviors and attitudes and, you know, ideas to constantly affect your emotional state, then you're never going to be settled because there's constant things happening around you. And, and it's, it's, you know, our, our responses are what's important. And so the best thing we can do for our children is to model that with them. Um, And I remember there was a time when the whole video gaming with my son, when he was, I want to say probably around 10-ish maybe. And he had some older older kids on the neighborhood who played some games that I just didn't know about. And I remember feeling really scared. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I told him no to something and he got upset. And then I remember being like, okay, this is my fear. He's obviously extremely excited about this opportunity. We have to work through this. And so I went back to him and said, listen, this seems like it's really important to you. I'm very confused about what exactly it is you're wanting to do. So can you give me a little bit more time? And he was like, okay, you know, I can do that. So kind of like, uh, okay, she's meeting me somewhere. Like we're gonna, we're gonna work this out. And I I just remember feeling so horrible because it was like, I was so scared that whatever it was he was going to play was going to somehow negatively impact him. And, you know, and just that, just, I was caught up in what, is said a lot of times about what's happening with video games and boys Mm -hmm. and, you know, so that's sort of, you know, part of the trajectory that we were on working through what I was being told was the truth. And then what I was also witnessing, because it was, because the truth is like, you look at the child in front of you and, and you will see, you know, are they stable? Are they, you know, joyful? Are they able to learn something or, or are they able to see something? And if they're, they're concerned, do they come to you with questions? So, you know, it's kind of like we try to put these blanket statements on how to handle certain things. And we just have to come back over and over again to like, look at the kid, look at the child, look at your mm-hmm. child. Um, so yeah, that was, that was one of those big moments as a mom <laughs> for me. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about how I think parenting has become so confusing because there's so many, like you were saying, with screen time or video games, what it will do to our kids. We get so Mm -hmm. taken out of ourselves that we don't even see the child in front of us and we completely lose our intuitive abilities. Like I had a similar experience with one of my sons who neither one of my kids ever played video games, but one of my sons one summer got really into video games. And I remember feeling that panic like oh my gosh what's gonna happen to him yeah and after a few months it just dissipated it just went away because he had a lot of other interests but I I found myself not able to see him anymore and I was just focused on all of the the sort of societal noise out there about telling me what's going to happen. And that is such a dangerous place to be parenting from. And I think it's such an easy trap and it happens to a lot of us. And somehow I was just talking to my mom about this the other day. It seemed like we, it seems like we've gotten away from intuitive parenting and intuitive parenting Mm -hmm. to me is being very attuned to your kids and I always think of it like keeping the, it's great to have theory and I'm so glad I understand child development, but that's always in the back of my head and I'm just guiding myself by how it feels. And that's something I would say to parents, if it doesn't feel right, stop doing Mm -hmm. it. If you're doing something with your child, whether it's a, you know, a behavior management thing or something that you think you're supposed to be doing, if it doesn't feel right, pay attention to that. That kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about paying attention, we miss all these, these body cues that are really so intelligent and we bypass it and go right up to our head and we try and rationalize things away. I often hear people say, I knew when I was doing it, I shouldn't be doing it. But we don't mm. trust that. It's like these fleeting voices that come into our heads and we dismiss it. And I would say, pay attention to that. Always pay attention to how you feel. Also, because often how we feel 
is how our kids are feeling, especially when they're really young. We pick up on each other, right? And so really just pay attention to all of that. Yes, definitely. And you're right. We do get separated from our bodies and, you know, particularly with the whole idea of, um, you know, now you're five and you go to school because school is where you Mm -hmm. learn. And now you just are focused on what your brain can retain and spit back Mm -hmm. out. And, and the whole body awareness piece just gets lost in the shuffle. It's almost like the school say, just send me your kid. I'll take the brain. And then you parents deal with the rest later. Mm -hmm. Um, there's not that combined, like, um, integrated way of being with another human. So, you know, speaking, going back to your farm, um, uh, program mm-hmm. that's it's called a program yeah. right Farm yeah. program yeah. <laughs> so going back to that what would you say then that that's one one of the pieces from your public school experience to now having this that you know for sure you're you're doing the whole the whole body the whole person absolutely I, if I can just backtrack a little bit because when you were sharing that you know about kids go to school they turn five I had an experience that was really one of the pivotal experiences why when I left the school district, I knew I I was not, I wasn't comfortable with how the emotional development of children was being met, at least in the school where I was at. And I remember observing, I had had a child that I worked with until he was five, and then he went to kindergarten and was having all sorts of challenges. So they called me in to observe him. And it was very, very early in the morning. I mean, I think they started like 730 and they were doing handwriting and they had to, they were looking at an overhead projector and copying letters. And he kept saying, my hand is so tired. I'm so tired. And the Mm. teacher and assistant, very well intended, were trying to encourage him, kept coming over and saying, oh, it's so early. You just got here. You can't be tired. And he kept on for about 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, I'm so tired. My hand hurts. My hand hurts. And continually, he was told, oh, it can't hurt. It's, it's, it's early. You're just saying that. And soon enough, after about 15 minutes, he just gave up. And he, he mm. just slumped in his seat and kind of tried to write, but was getting corrected. And I just thought, like, that's one small example, but that's just a piece. It's the beginning of how we teach kids not to trust their bodies. Whether he was really tired or not wasn't the thing. He was he was needing some kind of connection. He was needing something at the moment. And when we just dismiss them, they start to learn pretty quickly that, well, these adults are telling me this is nothing, and they start to override any sort of internal experience that they're happening. So, you know, for us, one of the biggest and most important parts of our homeschooling was when my kids had their off days. I remember, you know, one day in particular when it when it was stuck out of my mind that one of my sons was just laying by the window saying, I don't feel like doing anything today. And I remember feeling so good about telling him, then don't pay attention. You know, your body is telling you it's tired. Take today and see what tomorrow brings. Cause I trusted, I know he's not going to lay there forever. I really trusted that. And sure enough, the next day he was up and motivated to pursue lots of things And I think that's so important. I see so many adults that are sick because they're overworking themselves and they feel guilty. A lot of parents will tell me, I feel guilty if I'm, if I'm just quiet or I'm not doing anything. So I think it's Mm. that we start with children younger. Right. Well, I'm, 
I'm going to read you this little piece. It, um, it's so crazy because this book happens to be sitting right beside me. Um, it's the Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century mm-hmm. Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. And it's by Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein. Um, and they have a whole section on school. And um, I'm just going to read this part. I had already I had already highlighted it, not at all anticipating <laughs> what we were talking about, but I just can't believe how much it <laughs> fits course, into what we're saying. Course. So. I know. It says, using fear to keep children seated in neat and tidy rows, to keep their eyes forward and their mouths closed, to keep them from moving their bodies at all, but for a few selected moments in each day, this will help create adults who are unable to regulate their own bodies and senses, unable to trust in their own ability to make decisions, and likely to demand similarly controlled environments in their adult lives. Mm. So it's just pretty pretty crazy that that's it's exactly it right it's exactly it yeah and I think the part about you know regulating in their adult lives we want kids to be regulated and I would say that kids are actually naturally trying to this little boy was probably trying to regulate himself Mm -hmm. and we don't even recognize it in children because we don't recognize it in ourselves and it's really making us sick as an adult population that that we yeah. don't really have the self-regulatory abilities. So often, you know, kids are running around. They need to run around. They need to move their bodies. That's how they're trying to regulate. And we tell them, no, stop. Yeah, we over um, uh, we overcome them. We tell them that what they're experiencing and feeling isn't right. And then, to t- and, oh, sorry, Missy. And then to bring that back to attachment, like how does that impact your attachment with someone because you're really not being seen. They don't feel heard. Cause I know if someone was mm-hmm. doing that to me, it would, I would probably have a pretty insecure attachment with that person because I no longer feel safe. If you don't feel seen and heard, you don't feel safe. And again, we learn best when our nervous systems are relaxed and we feel seen safe and heard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to, I'm not going to push back on you. It's more like a question. It's more like, um, cause you know, I can hear sort of maybe some old school thoughts, people in my, in the back of my head saying, yes, but mm-hmm. if you don't push kids, sure, they're never going to try anything. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't tell them that they can, then they're just going to think that they're mm-hmm. always going to be able to get out of things or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like manipulating the system. Sure so to speak. So what would you say to the person who's questioning this idea that if you're listening to the kids and you're responding to how they're feeling and you're mm-hmm. hearing them, seeing them, um, are you essentially setting them up to always opt out because they just don't feel like it? Don't feel I like it. I love this question. This whole answer, I love this question <laughs> because it's really important. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. there's two parts to the question. Um, so Kids learn, I had just posted about this actually, kids learn to persevere and, and, and be accountable by doing something that they actually love. And I'll give the example of my one son who builds with Lego. He loves designing. He makes his own creations. He's traveled all over Mm. to these different um, conventions since he was about 12. And Oh, wow. That's yeah. And we used to have to enter with him. Um, because he it's an adult conventions that he enters and 
anyway, through all of this, like I knew there was something special with his Lego building, but I did have that fear like, well, he's spending his whole day building with Lego. How is he ever going to learn any sort of accountability? Well, what he learned from that passion was he learned how to meet deadlines. He learned how to like branch out into some pretty uncomfortable new situations. He learned how to collaborate with people. He learned how to network. He learned how to present his work. Like he put himself into so many new and different situations because he was inspired to be there. And what that has taught him, so fast forward now, he's taking college courses that he doesn't love. He's doing it because he may want to pursue a certain degree that he would need college. But he has the mm-hmm. integrity to persevere because it's almost embodied. He doesn't fear making mistakes. He, he understands what it's like to do meaningful work. So I would say that we almost turn kids off when we push them to do things that they're not connected to. It's almost like they mm-hmm. learn to dissociate. And yeah, they might reach a goal, but there's no, they're not connected to it. So what... And, and, and really what they take away is, oh, I hate doing that. So what good is that doing versus I see both of my kids. My other son is a musician and he, I mean, he perseveres with his composing and self-study and he puts himself in new situations because he learning and being uncomfortable are not things that feel threatening to him. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure I answered no, your that's... question. Did I answer that question? No, I think you did. I mean, I, I, I do think that I'm sure there could be multiple more, multiple questions that could spin off of, off of that. But it, it kind of makes me go back to what you said earlier about the pandemic and how, you know, a lot of people were thrown sort of into chaos. And I can't help but to wonder if part of it was not because there was so much external control yeah, absolutely. on many people's absolutely. lives. Absolutely. So this whole system that's been in place that basically told people when to get up, when to go to bed, when to eat, when to vacation was gone. Mm-hmm. So now what, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Absolutely. And so I, I think people who were already kind of living sort of with that internal locus of control were sort of like, okay, things are different, but we're mm-hmm. good. Yep. We're just going to roll with it because we didn't really need a lot of those systems that were operating kind of almost robotically in a way, you know, that they were just, they were there, they were just on ongoing. Um, and, and I, I believe that when we do work with our kids from an early age to listen, to hear, to pay attention, we're giving them a lot more power absolutely, to control themselves and their, their future. You know, and just to add, now I'm remembering my other part to that asking like, how, how do we get kids then to, to branch out and try new things? Part of it is it has to do with a secure attachment. So if we are, you know, what's the intention behind, let me back up. So if I were to notice with my own child that they were, you know, purposely avoiding something that I felt like I had this gut feeling, this would be really good for them. We talk about it again. Like we, we talk about it and oh, I'm losing my train of thought now. No, that's okay. I, Cause I have a thought, Missy, but I'm, I'm not able to articulate it completely. Yeah. So forget that. Scratch that. Well, <laughs> no, it, it'll come to you. It'll yeah, come to you. I'll, I am going to, I'll throw this out because I talk, talking about listening 
for, for our kids listening to themselves. So my daughter loved gymnastics. Well, she did it all on her own. She taught herself all this stuff. She was very flexible. And so she decided she wanted to take a gymnastics class. She was only five. And I was, when my firstborn, I never was like thinking any kid needed to be in a class at age five. <laughs> like it was just like, they just go have fun, right. but she wanted to do it. And she was great at it. And she had a blast. And the two teachers were adorable and they were, they were just so good with the kids. But then it became time for her to move up. And it was like, okay, you've mastered our little session section. So now it's time for you to move to the, to the next teachers. Well, she had gotten, uh, she'd had an experience where she witnessed one of the teachers that she was going to be, um, be with being very kind of rude and dismissive to some children. And it stuck with her Mm -hmm. and she told me about it, but I didn't realize that this was going to be the person that was, you know, in her, in her grouping. And sure enough, you know, we go the next time to the 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 new the new class and the teacher comes out and it's there's a main teacher and, a, and an assistant I should say the main teacher you know, introduced herself and everything and then the assistant came out and I could tell I was like oh that's her because I could tell the way my daughter was behaving because I didn't know exactly who it was and so she kind of went on and I just could see in her body language it's like she's not not gonna like this and next thing you know I see her holding her stomach and kind of talking to the teachers and they came over and she was like, my stomach hurts. I'm like, I bet it does. Like in my head, I said, I bet it does. I was like, okay, that's fine. We don't have to stay. And she's like, I don't want to. And I was like, okay. So we get in the car and sure enough, that's what it was. It, and I I remember being like, I'm so glad, so glad I listened to her because if I had been like, you're fine, your stomach doesn't hurt. Oh my God. You know, it, just go back. And it, it could have just totally separated her from herself, from me and from the experience. And, and, and it's not going to make her stronger. This whole idea that if you just tell them to put, push that feeling away and get over it. Okay. Is it going to, some people might say, well, they, they might be a better gymnast or they might've gotten over it and been more resilient maybe in the future. But I, I think there is definitely a window of time there where you're thinking, especially when they're five, you know, five little, they're just like, my body feels uncomfortable and I need to get out of this situation. And you are the person that I trust the most. And you're the one that's going to save me. And I think that's what we're supposed to do. Absolutely. And because we talked about attachment and how attachment plays out in the teen years, this is huge because when kids become practiced at this at a young age, like your five-year-old is saying, this doesn't feel right. I need to leave. Then when they become teens and we're not going to always be with them, they have Mm. that inner compass that says, you know what, this isn't a good choice. I'm not going to make it. And I've seen it over and over and over again with the kids who have been giving the space to pay attention to their own needs. They will make better choices as teens. It's just the, it does not, the teen years, you know, this do not have to be filled with rebellion. When they understand themselves and they feel safe with that, they will make better choices. And this is what I was going to say before. Now I'm remembering it. If we see patterns coming up with our kids, I've had conversations like, do you notice that? Oh, every time you're starting something new, I notice this happens. Do you notice that? And talk about it because it, it it gives them the opportunity to get closer at themselves, right? Without saying, hey, you're always quitting this or, hey, you never want to do this. 
let them explore why. There could be a really good reason that we are not in their bodies. We are not experiencing what they're experiencing. But this is all about relationship and opportunities to connect without judgment and just with pure curiosity with who's in front of you. And I just think the more kids get to know themselves, the better able they are to make good decisions later in life. And Mm -hmm. again, we see so many adults struggling right now with that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and um, just to further that point about making those decisions, it, or or you making the um, observation about what happens with your son or, Mm -hmm. you know, your, your child, that's the whole point of relationship We're we're in a family unit. And like you said earlier, we're kind of a, all, like a nervous system that's all connected. If, if part of the nervous system is off and the other part over here just continues to ignore that, you know, then we can't get corrected or we can't write ourselves or we can't, you know, um, have a resolution. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole point of that family unit is that we do help each other notice the things that maybe we're not doing Right. being our best selves. Or if, um, you know, we, we have, we've joked here throughout, um, my kid, my kids, my kids growing years, um, of, of like being steady, mm-hmm. you know, or like, mom, you're, you're not being steady. Mm-hmm. Um, or my son, one time I had, I guess, I don't even remember it. They were younger and I was just overwhelmed. I think I just needed to get out of the house because we had maybe multiple days in a row where we were home. And I'm one of those people that needs to pop out and I can pop back Mm -hmm. in. I can pop out, pop back in. I don't necessarily need to be out of the house every single day, but I definitely can't be in the house like four, five, six days in a row. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he was like, and I was like, I'm going to the store. I'll see y'all later. And you know, my husband was home and the kids were fine. But Daniel, my son later was like, mom, you rage quit life. I was like, like, no. And I just laughed about it because he was like, you were just like, I got to get out of here. Bye. And and he joked about it. It wasn't like he was upset or anything. He just called me out on it. I was like, yeah, you're kind of right. I was sort of just overwhelmed. and was like, I got to go. But I love that he felt comfortable doing that because it's true when they, when you are able to be in that conscious relationship with other people and they say something about the way you're behaving, you don't take it, take offense Mm -hmm. to it. Cause you trust exactly. them and you respect them and they respect you. And so, you know, it's not coming from this judgment. It's more like a, Hey, I know you could be better. Mm-hmm. Or I know that things could look differently and, or maybe you might want to check yourself. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's yeah. the key. I mean, when, when COVID hit, we had all of us home and mm-hmm. I, I, I talked to so many families who were struggling and they needed their space and they couldn't figure things out. We were so, we had, my husband had been laid off and then he got another job. There were so many pretty significant transition transitions happening for us. And I couldn't believe how, how fluid we were because we're yeah. so used to collaborating. So again, it all has to do with, you know, focusing on relationship, connection, knowing that it's not always blissful here. I mean, right. Of course. I I don't want to make it sound like everything's rosy because we're a real family. We have real challenges, but we were able to come back to center without flying off the handle all the time. And that's, that's just huge. And that feels safe for our kids. And, you know, for a lot of parents who haven't had that there, you can always work on it. I mean, I, I love working with parents who 
are at the point where they where they realize, wait, I need to change because that when I change, my child's going to change. And I love that because that's all it takes is your own awareness and you can start changing and repairing and, and focusing on relationship. Mm, yeah, that's so important. Well, um, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about the teen years a little bit more because here, let me, let me see if I can work it out. What sure. I, what I want to say, you mentioned the idea of the teen years being, um, like the turmoil, mm-hmm. but some people get worried about the teenage years mm-hmm. and the drama and things like that. So, um, what about the attachment theory and the application of the attachment theory in the younger years? How does mm-hmm. that buffer and support the teenage years? Sure. I think that's a really good question because I see a lot of parents who practice attachment parenting in the younger years, and then they get to those teen years or the the tween years. And I've heard people call it detachment. Mm. And I have to say that doesn't sit well when I hear that. And I understand what they're saying, that teenagers need, it's this time of individuation. They need more autonomy. They're figuring out who they are. But I think the attachment is still there in such a deep way. It just looks a bit different. So I remember actually when I was my kids were young and started to get a little bit older, I realized pretty early on they actually needed me more when they were older than when they were younger. In some ways, it was so much easier to meet their needs when they were younger. Now they were becoming these these real individuals. And I had to change my not my relationship, but how 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 we we were in relationship together. So for example, you know, I noticed a big transition when they were about 12 years old that they needed me in a very different way. And definitely around 16 or 17, you've probably seen this as well. So I would say, you know, when they're younger, sometimes we are helping them figure out their emotions. We might be helping them with more physical needs. Mm-hmm. When they get to teens, I would say there's more listening involved, like really listening, giving them space when they need space and not taking it personally. I think it's really easy to think, you know, you might throw something out there, an idea of what you want to do and they don't want to do it. And then you take it personally. So we really have to practice not taking things personally, validating their ideas and opinions, even if we don't agree. I mean, this is their time. We can't make someone adopt our values. Mm -mm. You know, we can't make somebody care. And I think, teens are just, they need to express themselves. So we need to give them that space to, to be who they are, to make mistakes and still support them. Um, so I think it looks very differently, but we are still, still deeply connected. You know, I made a conscious effort when my kids got a bit older, especially the last few years, cause they're 19 and 20 and still living at home. And I have to really give them more like they're adults living in, in the house now. Right. And so, yeah. you know, but we are so, so deeply connected. And, I, and I'll give an example, actually. One of my sons is very emotionally um, verbal. He can articulate his feelings. My other son, he is very sensitive, but does not articulate his emotions or connection in the same way. And often I'll notice I'll be in my bedroom at night watching TV or reading a book and he'll just come in and sit in the chair in my room and he's on his phone. 
and he's just there mm-hmm. with me. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, oh, like he's connecting. That's yeah, his yeah. checking. And I often, I'll just still, I'll be on my computer, whatever I'm doing. But as soon as he says something to me, I'll drop everything I'm doing because that's our moment to connect. Right. And it's when he's ready. And so I noticed that with both of my older kids, that that's what attachment looks like. I'm not, you know, grilling him on every little thing, but I'm picking up when, you know, often we'll just all sit together in the living room and that's their way of just connecting. And when they want to talk, they talk. And so it's, giving them that space. I mean, you probably, cause you have older kids, so you understand that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and I was just going to say, it's like the zone of proximity. It's that mm-hmm. you, you don't have to have a conversation, but you, it's that it, they're showing that they're connecting to you because they're within your, they're just mm-hmm. in your field of presence, your yeah. energy field even. Um, and uh, I was going to say too, about the, um, the changes that happen when our kids do become teenagers you as a parent are having to relearn a few things. You're having to learn to not Mm -hmm. say something. You're having to learn to step back more and give them that space to try things out and maybe even fail. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, not like you're going to just watch our kids do something completely irreversible, but we can't always do it for them. It's like we were talking about before. I think we started recording that, you know, part of our experience as either coaching other families or working with other parents is that you have to talk to them about what the possibilities are, but you can't do it for them. They have to go Mm -hmm. through it to get to the other side to then look back. Cause like, you know, as somebody who has a 20 year old and a a 15 year old, you know, I have a perspective now because of what I've been through with both of these children that I can relay to someone else but they still can't apply it mm-hmm. because they haven't had those same milestones and those same trials and the same joys. So, but they can kind of hear about it and go, Oh, okay. Maybe. These are things to possibly look out for. This is maybe something to take into consideration. Maybe these are the ways I can communicate and connect. Um, and so one of the things I say to my kids is just remember, I've been your mom for a long time. And sometimes you just need to tell me, when, when I'm over momming or just yep, intervening yep. too much. <laughs> and, and that's like, I'm never going to not be your mom. I can just tell I you that right now. Thing. Do you really? <laughs> I, say the, Missy, I say the exact same thing. I'm just a mom. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm just a mom. I can't help it. I love that. I know. And, and I, I mean, I'm just trying to be honest and, and they know. And even because, <laughs> so my daughter has type one diabetes and she was diagnosed at age 11 and it was a shocker for our family and for mm-hmm. her and for me. And, it was just like, wow. Um, but her, um, you know, and, and, and I get concerned that I'm overbearing sometimes and asking too many questions. And I tell her, I'm like, please tell me if I'm too much. Mm -hmm. She's like, you're not, it's okay. It's okay. And I will tell you too. She calls me Missy. All of her friends are like, what, did you just call your mom Missy? And she's like, yeah. (laughs) And we, I mean, it's a funny joke. And, and she's like, well, she responds to that. You know, if we're in a group of people, there's 10 kids saying mom, mom, mom. If she says, Missy, I turn around, <laughs> but, um, but you know, she'll say, no, you're fine. And mom, I, I actually like you to, to check in and ask me. Cause sometimes I just, you know, forget wow. or just don't think about it. And, um, but, but again, it goes back to communicating and just yeah. being honest and saying, Hey, I have some anxiety about this and I'm feeling this way, you know, just if I'm being too much, I, I need you to tell me. Yeah. 
And, and, and that's so, it's so great, Missy, because this all goes back to that secure attachment mm-hmm. that, that, that my kids say the same thing to me. They actually want my input. And I was thinking as you were speaking before, you know, coming to the teen years, when we, ha- when we focus on relationship and we focus on really connecting with our kids, they are more willing to listen to our ideas because we do have wisdom. I think the, the biggest mistake that people make with, with attachment parenting or trying to be gentle is we, we cross over into this permissive yes. place, mm-hmm. which we could do a whole, probably a whole podcast on that, right? right. And this is not about <laughs> being permissive at all because we have our own boundaries. Like what you and I are talking about is we have our own boundaries and boundaries are really healthy and they're really clear. And because our kids understand that and see it and respect it, like my teens will ask me for my, my advice. Doesn't mean they're going to do it, but they're more apt when you've worked on relationship and connection, they're, they're more apt to listen. They, they care about what you say. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you're talking about with your daughter. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, yeah, have seen it time and time again. And I was going to say today, I just saw something um, on Instagram of a mom. I think her name is Dr. Vanessa LaPointe. She's um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a parenting person. And she said the same thing about the whole like attachment parenting and how sometimes it can cross into the permissive. And she's like, ah. I call them the flowery meadow families or the flowery mm-hmm. meadow moms who are like, my children are just floating through a flowery meadow all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the unrealistic sort of this romanticized idea that if mm-hmm. I just allow my children to be, everything's just going to be fine. It's just right. going to, and you know, kids need us as their guides. They need us as that support. They need a container to thrive Absolutely. within. And if, and, and they also need us to lead and there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean you're overpowering them. That means you're showing them, you're modeling, you're, you're, exactly. you know, and yes, of course we're not perfect and we make mistakes, but that's where that communication again comes in. That's where that whole, like taking a moment and taking stock of the situation, reading the room, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and asking, Hey, am I over, am I too much? Am I doing too much? Am I in your way? Right, right. So, you know, and that's that those, I think that language is mu- so powerful. And unfortunately, a lot of people, myself included, we didn't grow up that way. We didn't grow up with our parents actually saying, Hey, did I just overstep? Right, <laughs> right, it's right. like, nobody asked that question. You just kind of went right. to your room and were like, dang, all right then. <laughs> um, right. And then, then they don't get to practice that at mm-hmm. a young age. Like what better time to practice making mistakes, communicating, articulating your thoughts and feelings when you're young and you've got this, like this, this container to practice, you know, versus, you know, what we brought up earlier about just pushing kids through and and making them do things because it's really going to be what's best for them. There's just missed opportunities in that really, really missed opportunities that at some point, I just really believe come back to haunt you later in life. Because Mm -hmm. at some point, we all have to be able like my my 20 year old said this, the problem with the world is that People just are not able to process and digest their emotions. So we do all sorts of crazy things to bypass our emotions. And Mm. and he kind of nailed it. Like, that's really what it is. Yes. Yes. No, I agree. I think he's definitely onto something. And, you know, I wrote something not too long ago about the fact that we do live in a time where we actually have the luxury of thinking about our emotions and feelings and working through things. And I do find that, you know, we have pendulum swings, I think, in society. 
And we are at this point where emotions are high and people can Mm -hmm. share their emotions in a nanosecond. And it's like across the entire world. So we've got this ability to magnify things in a way that we've never had an ability to to before where, you know, if you wanted to learn about something that happened in another country, you had to wait for the article to come out or happen to be able to watch Mm -hmm. the show at the time that it was, but now we don't have, we don't have those buffers in place. We don't have those, the time that separates the event from the reporting of the event. And so people's nervous systems are in overdrive. And if you don't know how to regulate yourself, or mm-hmm. you don't have a team of people that you can depend on that can help you regulate, but instead actually egg you on and, and make you even more upset or more overwhelmed, then, you know, we find ourselves in, in, in a society where, where, where things are a bit chaotic. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I do feel like what the importance of these conversations is to also, to teach to not necessarily teach, but to talk about it so that people recognize how powerful they can be if they were learning how to harness this information and apply it to their lives. They would go from being, I feel like, overwhelmed and powered over to empowered. Now they would Absolutely. be like, okay, I don't have to allow this election to ruin my life. I don't have to allow right. this person who said something to make me feel like I need to go on a rampage, you know, I, it's so it's more of that internal locus of control versus everything on the external stirring you up. Mm-hmm. And it starts like you mentioned earlier with your daughter being five and saying, Hey, this doesn't feel right. Mm. That's teaching her, right. That we, we have, we have some, we can manage this yes. and this is how we do it. Yep. But when you just have to push through things over and over yeah, you definitely develop that sense of, I don't have any control. I think I posted about it maybe last week about teaching kids that the world is a hard place. It doesn't really make them more resilient. It really teaches them that they're, you don't have any control over it. This mm-hmm. is how it is. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very disempowering. It's so much healthier, I think, to point out all the good that is in the world and let that be the foundation that they stem from and grow from because it empowers them to know like, Hey, I can kind of create the world I want to live in, or at least surround myself with the kind of people that, that help me to thrive. Yes. Yes. No, I'm so glad you brought that up too, because you're right. There's so much in our faces that tell us that the world is ending, (laughs) but when Mm -hmm. you really stop to think and you, if you walk through your own personal day out in the world I mean, think about the fact that you can drive on a road where people abide by the rules of the road. Think about Mm -hmm. the fact that you go into a store and people greet you and say hello. And, you know, somebody helps you to your car. And those are the things that I think we forget about and focus so much on all the noise that's happening. It's like, you know, being able to, to, to set your aim differently again, you know, and reset, Mm -hmm. um, so that you don't get so swept up in, in the, in the wildness that, (laughs) that is our world sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've talked about a lot and I I wish that I could bullet point it, but, um, but I cannot recall it in order. So are there anything, anything else you feel like maybe we missed or something else that you want to be sure we touch on in relation to attachment and teenage relationships and being in alignment with our kids and our values. 
you know, we did, we touched on so much, but I would just say in terms of attachment and teens, again, is just slowing down, trusting yourself, trusting them and, and really get curious and ask questions, give them this space to where they know and completely feel. I mean, our words, we can say, I trust you, but they feel it if we don't really Mm -hmm. um, trust them. So it's so important for us to get clear with our own, our own emotions, right? And so that we can provide this safe space for teens. It's just huge. Yeah. Well, how can people find you, Anne? Well, um, so I'm online now. So at Inner Parent Coaching is where you can find me online. So for people who do not live here in Oregon, and I'm sort of, I really developed my online page because I am just called to advocate for children and parents and just reach a wider audience. So right now I'm providing some one-to-one coaching and some group coaching, but I you know, would love it if people reach out and ask questions, but you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Inner Parent Coaching. And I'm really focusing on unschooling and partnership parenting and helping parents who want to learn more about how to connect with their kids and in a different way and, and lead more soul aligned lives. Thank you for listening. This is the final episode of 2022 and wraps up the podcast for the year and what a year it has been. I've met some incredible people and have enjoyed bringing their stories, their insights, and the work they are doing to positively impact the world to you. The calendar is already filling up for 2023. I'll be talking to entrepreneurs, studio creators, therapists, energy workers, and more parents living and learning alongside of their children. I cannot wait. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and cheers to a wonderful new year. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.